I invite you as the kids leave to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We'll continue our time in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2 now. We're starting in verse 13. Thessalonians. If you're using a pew Bible, then it is on page 957. As I, I'm going to read this passage in a second, but as I do, let me invite you, as I read it, I want you to focus on two things that Paul mentions here, two kind of central concepts to this short passage. Both of these things are things that come from God and are given by God to humans and received by humans, one of which is a good thing and you want, you want to receive this thing, and the other is something you don't want to receive. The first that I want you to look for is the Word of God. You'll see the Word of God is prominently on display. The concept, the idea of God's Word is all over this passage. And the second thing I want you to look for and think about is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is also present in this text, and that's the thing that you don't want to be on the receiving end of. So let's look for both of those things, I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm starting in verse 13 and reading through verse 16. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me and ask for his help as we consider it together. Holy Father, thank you for this special moment in, in the life of a believer when we gather together as a family and we consider together your word. I pray that you would make your book live to us. I pray that you would help us to give some sense of the, of the treasure, of the, of the magnitude of the blessing that we have in your Holy Scripture. I pray that we would hear it and understand it and believe it and apply it to our lives. I pray that you, the potter, would shape us by the power of your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so the word of God is the first thing we want to consider this morning. So let's briefly start by asking the obvious question, what is it? What are we talking about here? What is Paul referring to when he uses that phrase, the Word of God? Paul definitely believed that what we today in the church call the Old Testament, uh, they didn't call it that at the time, but that's what we call it, the Old Testament, Paul believed that was the Word of God, but he can't have only have meant the Old Testament 
Because the message that Paul preached included not only the Old Testament, but it he, Paul claimed, the message that Paul brought claimed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. But Paul also, when he uses the phrase word of God, can't mean the New Testament as we understand it. Because at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, most of the rest of the New Testament had not yet been written. So what is Paul referring to when he uses that phrase, word of God, here in the message, here, here in, the, in, the, in this passage? What he's referring to is the message and the doctrine that he and the other apostles had been entrusted with and commissioned by God to proclaim. That included the Old Testament, but it also included the message that the apostles were bringing to the churches. Now, over time... That message was written down in the Gospels and the Epistles. It was collected into the 27 books that we know as the New Testament. The last human author of Holy Scripture was the Apostle John. He wrote the book of Revelation from exile on the Isle of Patmos. And after John died, then what we refer to as the Apostolic Age came to an end. And then the church began the long process, guided by the Holy Spirit, of determining which books and letters were authentic and belonged as part of the Bible, part of the canon of Scripture, and which didn't. As you probably know, there were lots of candidates, lots of letters that had been written claiming to be apostolic, and the church then had to figure out which ones are in and which ones are not. Now, this is not the time or place for me to go into a lecture about the historical process of how these specific 27 books of the New Testament were selected, except to say that as Christians, we believe that both the Old and the New Testaments are the Word of God, and therefore they are fundamentally different from any book that was ever written. We believe that based on the authority of the church, but we also believe it based on the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, such that when we read this book, the Bible, we hear the very voice of God. It is, in that sense, self-authenticating to those who read this book by faith, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We hear the voice of God when we read this book, and we need no more proof than that. But maybe you hear me say that, and you say, well, yeah, but wait a minute. Not everyone who reads the Bible thinks it is God's Word. So what is going on there? And that's right. There are many people. In fact, there are people who have dedicated their whole lives to studying God's Word who don't believe that it's any different than any other book. I know people like that. Biblical scholars who study God's Word but don't believe that it's God's Word think it's just another piece of literature to be studied. And that is why the verbs that Paul uses in this passage are so important. He says that the Thessalonians received the Word of God. They accepted that the Word of God is divinely inspired and not the Word of humans, and they believed the content of the Word of God, and therefore, he says, the Word of God is at work in them. They've received it, they've accepted it, they've believed it, and therefore, it's at work. It's doing its thing in them. What does that tell us? Well, listen, God's Word is God's Word. It doesn't change based on what we think. It doesn't. But in order for God's word to be at work in us, 
We need to receive it, accept it, and believe it. Let me give you, I'll give you a small example to make my point. Last week, I was in my parents' basement just rummaging through uh, all my old junk that I have accumulated over the years and uh, going through boxes, most of which were full of entirely worthless, worthless things. But one, in one box, I came across a manila envelope. I did not know what was inside of it, expecting to find more junk. I opened it up, looked inside, and found an old Sports Illustrated magazine. Actually, a very old Sports Illustrated. It was the first one. It was published in 1954. My grandpa bought it at the time when it came out, and uh, he thought that, well, maybe this is the first edition, maybe this magazine will make it, uh, maybe one day this will be worth something, and so he just put it aside. When I was in high school, uh, there's a, on the cover of it, there's a picture of, ba- it's a baseball game, it's Milwaukee Braves, and so I was into baseball in high school, and so he gave it to me. I received it, threw it in an envelope, threw it in a box, and forgot about it. Found it last week, showed it to my son Elliot. Then we looked at, we, we thought, oh, that's interesting, that's fun. We looked at it together. I threw it back in the envelope and threw it back in the box. Elliot, who's a little smarter than me, went online, looked it up, looked up the value, and discovered that two years ago, a copy of this very magazine that we were kind of flipping through sold for about $12,000. At which point, I immediately went back to the box, (laughs) grabbed the magazine, put it in a safe place, and began researching how best to preserve old magazines. See, the magazine itself didn't change one bit. It's the same magazine, right? Before I knew the value, after I knew the value, same magazine. Same words, same pictures, same stories. But my attitude to the magazine changed immensely once I knew the value of the thing that I had. And I, I, I was going to hold it up for you in a dramatic moment and say, here it is. But I can't do that because I'm currently having it professionally preserved and framed so I can hang it on my wall. <laughs> you can come over and see it. Hopefully that little illustration helps us see what Paul is getting at here. Paul commends the Thessalonians. He's, he's, he's saying, well done. You got this right. Well done. Look, the reason why God's, work is at, God's word is at work in you is because you have understood. You have rightly understood the value of what it is you've been given. You've received it. You've accepted it. You've believed that it is the word of God, and therefore, it's at work in you. It's doing its thing in you. Our attitude towards Scripture is so important. Right? Like I said, God's Word doesn't change. It's God's Word. It doesn't matter what we think about it. It's God's Word. But our attitude towards it will determine how it is at work in our lives. Now listen, my magazine is only worth money, which is nice, but in the big picture, money is not an important thing. But God's Word is of infinitely more value than money. Psalm 19, I mean, there's lots of places we could go in the Bible to make that point, but Psalm 19, do you remember? It says, the law of the Lord is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. When we open God's word, when we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word, we are in the presence of something of infinite value. 
Like, I, I, I know that's a big phrase, infinite value. That, that's the right phrase. We are in the presence of something of infinite value when we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. That means we should receive it and accept it and believe it and treasure it. We should submit to it. We should orient our whole lives around it. We're not supposed to critique it or judge it. It judges us, right? We don't stand in authority over God's word. It stands in authority over us. It judges us. We don't say, well, I know that's what it says, but now we know better. I know that that's what it says, but that was the Bronze Age, and I think we figured out a few things since then. No, 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 no. We tremble before it. The Bible says that God is looking for people who will tremble before his word. And just to be clear, it's, it's not that we worship the Bible. We don't worship this book. We worship the one who wrote it. And we believe that this book is his words, and so we treasure it. That is what it means to receive God's word and to have it at work in us. And that is what Paul is commending the Thessalonians for. He's saying, well done. You have rightly understood the value of the thing that you've been given. Is that how you think about and interact with God's word? If so, and I know that there are lots of people here, that's exactly how you think about and interact with God's word. I know that. I hear it in your voice when you talk about God's word. I see it in your eyes. I know that. And if that describes you, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if not, if that's not how you think about the Bible, no wonder it's not having an impact on your life. If you're not approaching the Bible with reverence and awe, no wonder that when you read it, it just bounces off you and it doesn't have an impact. The problem there is not with the Bible. It's with the way that you're reading it. You cannot treat this book like any other book because this book is not any other book. This is God's word. That's the first thing in this passage that's given by God and received by humans. God's word. The second thing in this passage, given by God, received by humans, the thing that you don't want to receive from God's hand is God's wrath. That final chilling sentence in this passage Right? It reads this, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Feel the weight of those words. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. May those words never, ever describe anyone in this room. Who, who is the them in that sentence? The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Who's them? If you follow along the logic of the passage, Paul says that after receiving and accepting and believing God's word, the Thessalonians suffered persecution at the hands of their fellow countrymen, which would have been pagan Gentiles. That's their fellow countrymen in Thessalonica, Gentiles. And then, but then he says, you were persecuted by your countrymen just as the churches in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews. That's what Paul says. So just to be clear, He's not calling out the Jews for being especially bad. He's saying when the gospel comes to a Gentile land, 
then Gentiles persecute the church. When the gospel comes to a Jewish place, then Jews persecute the church. Basically making the same point that Jesus made in John 17, wherever God's kingdom is being established on earth, persecution from unbelievers normally follows. So getting back to that last sentence, the them upon whom the wrath of God has come is the Jewish unbelievers who persecuted the church. And what he's saying here is that when you set yourself in opposition to God and his message, you are positioning yourself to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile is not the point. The point is that if you're opposing God, then you are willfully placing yourself in a dangerous position. Paul uses the past tense here. He says the wrath of God has come upon them at last. He's talking about it's happened. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. A lot of commentators see that as a reference to recent atrocities that had been committed by the Roman government against the Jewish people, which culminated, those persecutions culminated in thousands upon thousands. In fact, some estimates are 30,000 Jews were executed in the temple during Passover in the year A.D. 49. A horrific event. Now, whether or not Paul's referring to that particular event, we don't know. But we do know that those who oppose God will be subject to his wrath. But that surely raises a question in our minds. Why? Why is God wrathful? I thought the Bible says that God is love, so how is God's love compatible with God's wrath? And the short answer to that question is that God is wrathful because he is loving. Not only are the two not contradictory, but they necessarily go together. God's wrath is his holy and loving and just response to the intrusion of evil into this world. Unlike our own anger, that is not a good analogy to think of our own anger because our own anger is often arbitrary and self-serving. God's wrath is always right and always loving, always just, and is always the right reaction to moral evil. Unless you think that God's wrath was an Old Testament thing that we outgrew when we got to the New Testament, Let me remind you that we find references to God's wrath all over the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments. You have to skip an awful lot of verses if you never want to talk about God's wrath. For example, Jeremiah 30 says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Or, New Testament, Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Or, end of the Bible, Revelation 19, you know the scene. The Son of God is returning to earth. And it says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's Revelation 19 that awaits fulfillment. 
We could keep going, but I trust you get the point. The wrath of God, the idea of the wrath of God, is all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Paul uses the word wrath regularly throughout his epistles. He uses it multiple times in this epistle alone, 1 Thessalonians. And if you ask yourself why, the simple answer is love. Paul loves the people that he's writing to. He loves them so much that he feels compelled to warn them of impending danger. When you love someone, you don't sit back and cross your arms with indifference when you see them heading towards a dangerous thing. You warn And that is what Paul is doing out of love, is warning. Warning of the wrath of God. Okay, well then how does one avoid being on the receiving end of God's wrath? Well, what I find especially interesting here in this passage is that Paul himself used to perfectly fit the description that he gives of the Jews who persecuted the church in Judea. That was Paul. He himself was a Jew who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He himself was a Jew who persecuted the church and tried to stop the spread of the gospel. And he was fully, he knows this, he was fully deserving of receiving the wrath of God himself. And so what happened to Paul? Grace. He met Jesus and he received grace and it changed everything. That's the point of the apostolic message of the gospel, which Paul received from Jesus and devoted his life to preaching. All of us rightly deserve to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. Jew, Gentile, pagan, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, everyone who ever lived. Paul makes that point explicitly in Romans 3, which we considered together during our time of confession and assurance. He said, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Right? He, keeps, he, he kept using that word all. I tried to emphasize it when I read it. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the solution to the universal problem that all humans, without exception, are facing? Paul gives the answer in the, in the next verse. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood received by faith. There's a big word in there. It's not a word we use much today. What is a propitiation? It's a means of making atonement to secure our forgiveness. It's paying a debt and wiping it clean. And how was our forgiveness secured? Well, it wasn't secured by God simply looking the other way and saying, well, come to think of it, sin's not really that big of a deal. No, according to the Bible, our sin is a big deal. But there was one, only one, who lived and loved perfectly, who did not sin and did not fall short of the glory of God. And he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And the wrath of God was poured out upon his head so that whosoever believes shall not die but have eternal life. And by the way, if you've ever wondered why it is that wherever the church goes, persecution is usually right behind, there's your answer. People don't like that message, right? You feel that. I feel that. We don't like to be told that we're all sinners deserving of God's wrath. 
and that the only way that we can avoid God's wrath is by trusting the one person who can save us. And and if someone has a problem with that message, then they have not accepted, received, and believed God's word. And that's how the two points of this sermon relate to each other. Everyone is going to receive one of these things from God that we've been talking about this morning. Either you will receive and accept and believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has given us in his holy word, or you will receive God's wrath, which is a sobering thought. But it is one that need not cause us to live in fear of God's wrath, since Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, which is exactly how Paul ends this letter to the Thessalonians, and how I'm going to end this sermon. Thessalonians chapter 5, last chapter of the book, and verse 9. Listen, if ever you find yourself fearing God's wrath, fearing God's wrath, let me encourage you to find comfort in this simple verse. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul said to the Thessalonians, and that is true for all of us who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your word. It is such a gift that you have given us. It is a gift of immeasurable value. We want to recognize this morning that you didn't have to give us this gift. You're not required to communicate to your creation, but you did. You're a God who speaks. You spoke all of creation into existence with your word. Jesus Christ, you are the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And we have your words spoken through your prophets, through the apostles, written down, recorded, preserved, cherished and treasured and passed on from generation to generation. It is a book, but it is not merely a book. It's living and breathing, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a God-breathed book, and we thank you for it. We willingly and gladly place ourselves under the authority of your word. And I pray that you would help us to orient our lives and our families and our church around your word. And Lord, I thank you for your wrath. I don't think I've ever prayed that prayer before, but I recognize that your wrath is an expression of your love and your justice. It is the right response to the evil that has been unleashed in your creation. And I thank you that you have responded to evil appropriately with wrath. But I also thank you that though we deserved it, we are not on the receiving end of that wrath. Because our Lord and Savior, your Son, the Messiah, stood in our place and received the wrath that we deserved so that we might be forgiven and received as your children. Such a blessing, Lord. Help us to live in the good of that every day of our lives. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.